1: real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 7, Driftmark.
0: Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to be here to talk about the seventh episode of House of the Dragon called Driftmark. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are fans of the books. We will avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon But we will have a spoiler section at the end and we'll give you a giant heads up for that. So whatever your Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones background, we've got a lot to offer tonight. In this episode, there was not much of a time jump from last time. We're talking weeks, not months or years. We began with a funeral and ended with a wedding. Things are unfolding pretty quickly these days on House of the Dragon. Last week, we had a close look at a new generation of characters who will inherit some of the political problems being created by their parents and elders. This week, we got to see how the fault lines of these conflicts are manifesting in the behaviours of those children. Clearly, tensions are mounting week after week, and here the gloves came off and the rivalry between the two factions began to spill over into open violence. The writers succeeded in conveying this escalating tension while simultaneously maneuvering characters into position to solidify the factions and pave the way for further conflict. The key maneuver in this regard was Daemon marrying his niece Rhaenyra to form a Targaryen power couple that will surely be a force to be reckoned with. But that wasn't the only power move in the episode, given Aemon's desire to bond with the most formidable weapon in Westeros, both factions steel themselves today. So we have so much t- to talk about today and we can't wait to get into m- more depth. So why don't I say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn.
2: Hello, hi everybody. Welcome to everyone who's joining us and hello to those of you who join us in the future. Uh, yeah, Driftmark, my favorite location. And we have so much to say about this episode. Uh, lots of power moves, like you said. And really looking forward to digging in. And we have our recurrent guest, Emily, back again tonight. Welcome. Yeah. Hello. Glad to be back. (laughs) Well, lots and lots to say and do. So let's get things started. Before we begin our analysis, uh, we want to tell you that Radio Westeros is supported by our patrons. And if you want to be a patron of the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash and there you can find out about all of the perks that come with being a patron, which includes shout-outs. So we're going to start with a shout-out for our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter of John Wrigarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as Word worded Mr. J, the bear in the maiden fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop. House motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Good evening to you, Sir Tim. And as a reminder, we'll have shout outs later on for anyone who used the super chat option this evening. And thank you in advance for that as well. So uh, back over to you, Yoke Boy, get us started.
0: Okay, we'll start with the funeral. We've talked before about how House of the Dragon often centers its episodes around one particular event. We've had a tourney, a hunt, a wedding. In this episode, we begin with a funeral at high tide on Driftmark, the seat of House Valerian. Westerosi royalty gathered to mark the passing of Lena, who we saw die by dragon fire last week. Whereas Targaryens cremate their dead in keeping with their fiery theme of their house and in Fire and Blood it does seem House Valerian follows suit. In the show apparently the Valerians prefer maritime funerals given they have a history of seafaring. While Lena's tomb is lowered into the sea, Vaymond Valerian delivers the funeral rites. Vaymond is Corliss's younger brother in the show, he's actually his nephew in the books, but anyway his speech spoken in High Valerian begins like this. We join today at the seat of the sea to commit the Lady Lena of House Valerian to the eternal waters, the dominion of the Merlin king, where he will guard her for all the days to come. So the Merlin king is a god associated with the narrow sea. He's worshipped by sailors and the Valerians believe this god bestowed the driftwood throne upon them. So this is some deep lore, and although the Merlin King is a lesser-known god compared to the Severn and so on, there is a statue of this deity in the House of Black and White, as well as a ship and a rock formation named after him. And although this is a serious and sombre occasion, Vaymond can't help himself when he mentions that Lena's children were true-born, and that Valerian blood runs true and must never thin with Vaymond glancing at Rhaenyra and Lenor. We know this was meant as a subtle slight against her children, a fact which causes a moment of discomfort for the king, the princess, her husband and the kids. One person who seemed to enjoy the subtext, though, was Daemon, who audibly sniggers. A lot of this episode will be about factions and factions within factions and this brief scene with Vaymond conveys that House Valyrian have mixed feelings about Luke and Jace looking a lot more like Harwin Strong than their Valyrian father. On one hand, with Jace being in line to one day inherit the Iron Throne, the Valyrian name has pride of position next to House Targaryen. On the other, this might be a superficial boast, given it seems to be common knowledge that Rhaenyra's kids do not have Valyrian blood. Proud Vaymont clearly falls on the side of blood first, but the theme of blood versus name will be revisited later, Lady Gwynne.
2: Uh, yes, it will. Uh, one thing that occurred to me during this scene is that with these funeral rites being delivered in High Valyrian, uh, a lot of people present might not have actually understood what he was saying. So Vayman's dig about the blood uh, running true probably had a very specific and very small audience, uh, namely Lord and Lady Valerian, the king and his brother Damon, Rhaenyra and Laenor. And, you know, the kids maybe, but assuming that they're still learning, not all of them, Probably are fluent enough uh, in the High Valyrian to follow this entire speech. So, uh, one one person I do think was aware is Jace. He seems very tuned into these uh, slights and these rumors, as we'll see later in the episode. So, uh, I did assume that it went over most of the guests' heads, uh, including Alicent and Otto's. Uh, and speaking of Otto. Uh, while there probably hasn't been a huge passage of time, as you said, it's clearly been enough for Alicent to convince Viserys to summon her father. Uh, notably, in Fire and Blood, the deaths of Harwin and Lionel Strong take place after the deaths of Lena and Laenor Valerian. And it's actually Laenor's funeral that the extended family assembles for, uh, with the Strong still alive. Clearly, this change was made to sort of streamline the reintroduction of Sir Otto as hand. And sure enough, there in that funeral sequence, we get a close up of him looking particularly proud of his little hand of the king pin. Just sort of like, oh, look at me, hand again. Uh, Whether Viserys considered other options to replace uh, Lord Lionel, such as Rhaenyra or Daemon, as Fire and Blood reports, uh, there were a number of other people under consideration, Uh, he did obviously end up in the same place, choosing familiarity over wisdom Uh, that's... Sounds like Viserys all the way, uh, giving his wife an enormous measure of power with her father back at her side, while still maintaining his support of Rhaenyra as her heir. And this is something that seems fairly short-sighted, to say the very least. So we also see uh, lots of dragons wheeling in the sky above high tide. In Fire and Blood, regarding Laenor's funeral, it says, So many dragons were present that Septon Eustace wrote that Driftmark had become the new Valyria. But let's not forget that dragon is also shorthand for the human members of House Targaryen. And they're all present. This is the first time we've seen the entire house assembled, uh, now enlarged by the births of a number of new children, like you said. Really, I think since Renira and Lanor's wedding. I mean, obviously the first time we've seen them on screen, but I don't think there would have been any other occasion in the uh, decade that's passed where they might have gotten together off screen. So uh, considering how smoothly Renira and Lanor's wedding went, what could possibly go wrong here? Uh, In the Inside the Episode feature, the showrunners uh, actually noted that um, the wake on the patio at High Tide was uh, the first scene that they filmed with the full cast. I thought this was very interesting because they commented that the actors really had yet to get to know each other and they're all still a bit unsure and awkward and the showrunners intentionally capitalized on that to portray this awkward family get-together death always makes people uncomfortable even in a close family people might struggle to know what is the right thing to say but this family is the opposite of close dysfunctional with a capital d and so we get peak awkwardness much of the scene is framed from Rhaenyra's perspective as she sort of moves around through the group, uh, family and assorted well-wishers, presumably Valerian family and retainers. She's in constant motion, not stopping really to talk to anybody except for her boys, but her constant frame of reference is her widowed uncle, Damon, uh, who is a static and solitary figure. Leaning on the wall, very much apart from the gathering. The contrast between his immobility and Rainier's almost nervous circuit of the crowd, I felt really connected them. There's almost like a line drawn between them where she's just sort of orbiting uh, him. Um they don't speak a word to each other though. They exchange a few looks. There are others in the crowd who were virtually silent too. Alicent and Viserys appear extremely ill at ease and throughout the lengthy scene the camera work finds all of those uncomfortable silent spots and contrasts them with a series of interactions between pairs of characters so it's another one of those episodes where a lot of the interactions are just with a couple or two uh, characters on screen and uh, we're going to go through that now uh, that sequence, starting with Rhaenyra and her eldest son, Jocerys.
1: Yeah. yeah, so uh, like Lady Gwen said, we do see Rhaenyra drifting kind of through the gathered family and assorted nobles, not really having a clear place. Like, you know, it almost feels a little awkward uh, at times where she could make, make contact, but doesn't. The one conversation that Rhaenyra actually seeks out is with her eldest son, Jacaris or Jace, the two of them now share a secret pain, silently grieving Harwin while at the funeral of a more distant family member by comparison. Jace doesn't understand why they can't be at Hall, and Rhaenyra has to remind him. The scene is brief, but touching as we see Rhaenyra instinctively comfort her children and fall back on her role as a mother when feeling a bit out of place at the wake. As Jake wa- Jace walks away, Rhaenyra notices Alicent and Kristen kind of giving her the stink eye. And she appears awkward and uncomfortable here. I I, I really feel for Rhaenyra, you know, who's been conciliatory in the past to no avail. Uh, in interviews with Olivia Cook, she stated that even seeing Rhaenyra be a good mother only sours Alicent towards the princess further. There's so much, like, envy and jealousy that Alicent you know, can't be glad that her once friend is a good mother. Instead, she assumes Rhaenyra is just naturally good at something uh, that Alison not only struggles with more, but that Rhaenyra is, in her mind, taking it for granted. It's a really toxic dynamic that I think the actors are doing an incredible job of portraying, even non-verbally.
0: Agreed. And next up, we get a brief scene with Helena. So let's talk about that. Last week, we were introduced to Helena, um, Viserys and Alicent's second child after Aegon. That was a brief scene too, but it was a memorable one given that she was immediately characterized as being obsessed with insects. She was closely analyzing a millipede while her mother told Aemond that one day he'll ride a dragon, and when Helena muttered that he'll need to lose an eye, show watchers weren't sure if she was talking about the millipede or her brother. Knowing what happens next, though, book readers knew that Helena was making an offhand prophecy there, that Eamon would ride a dragon and lose an eye in quick succession. We'll talk about Aemond mounting Vagar later on, but for now, let's acknowledge that Helena's rambling prediction came true, confirming, I think, that she is a dragon dreamer. The brief scene with Helena here in this episode builds upon both her love of bugs and these prophetic abilities. While the rest of the attendants are busy mingling and having those awkward conversations, she remains antisocial and favours spending time with a spider. All the while, she mutters the lines, hand turns the loom, spool of green, spool of black, dragons of flesh weaving dragons of thread. She says this phrase on repeat and it's clear that she lives in a world of her own. Given we now know her ramblings are prophetic, we can look at her lines here and wonder what they predict without going into spoiler territory. Given she's talking about weaving with green thread, we know she's talking about Alison and her faction and that green dress, obviously. And I think in this episode, characters uh, have began to call this group the Greens, Although I understand that the show is dealing with a sprawling story that needs to skirt through some of the dynamics, I do think it's a huge shame that we don't know Viserys' opinion on Helena. While it's becoming increasingly obvious to the viewer that she has this prophetic gift, nobody in story has mentioned it. Viserys especially would surely be in awe of her if he realised that she's whispering glimpses of the future under her breath. I would just love to know what Viserys makes of her and I'd love to know if he's even realized that she has these abilities. So Aegon Aemon, and Aemond watch Helena and find her quite peculiar. And then Aemond mentions that apparently their mother has told Aegon he will have to marry the sister in accordance with Targaryen traditions based on what George R. R. Martin has said are about keeping the bloodlines pure and better controlling the dragons. Anyway, although Aemon seems more willing to hypothetically do his duty than party boy Aegon, it seems like the Aegon-Helena match is a done deal, and Aemon's comments that his sister is Aegon's future queen also reveals that Alicent has been anything but discreet in her insistence that Aegon is Viserys' rightful heir.
1: Definitely. So, despite the dysfunction on display between Allison's children, we do get a tender moment of bonding between Helena and Damon's children, Raina and Bela, and their cousin Jace. All three kids are struggling with the extreme pain and loss of a parental figure, uh, now both kind of facing life without someone who cared very deeply for them. It's a tender moment, particularly when juxtaposed with what we just saw, which was Aegon's disdain for Helena. Considering that these kids haven't grown up together and, and really are just getting to know each other for the first time, it's it's incredibly sweet that they can find comfort in each other so naturally here.
2: I definitely agree with that. I love that scene. Then into that scene moves Rainey's uh, bereaved mother, lady of the house, who doesn't really seem all that interested in talking to her guests. I can't really blame her. She's not the ones she's related to anyways. Uh, we get... Virtually no shots of her interaction with Damon Viserys, Alice, and to her children, or even Rhaenyra and her children. In fact, uh, she and Rhaenyra are both similarly awkward, meet near the drinks table, and appear to sort of ignore each other. I mean, you, you've all been there at a social gathering. You run into someone you'd rather not talk to, and you suddenly become blind. Totally didn't see them. You just turn away <laughs> and pretend you were doing something else. Well, that was that scene. Um, it was relatably awkward. I think in the moment, it contributes to the overall tone that's being portrayed. But later, when we see Rainey's talking with Corliss, we'll get an idea of exactly why the princess didn't have much to say to her cousins, two of whom are also her children-in-law. So uh, I did notice that uh, when she went over to embrace her granddaughters, which was very sweet, uh, except for the fact that in doing so, she not only broke up that tender moment between Jocerius and, and Bela but uh, she appeared to utterly ignore Jace uh, who is nominally at least also her grandchild again peak awkwardness on all parts a little bit of unpleasantness from the queen who never was uh, but apparently she can't resist the old Westerosi prejudice against bastards and that's something I do hope that she overcomes given how really sweet and kind uh, Giserys seems to be.
1: Speaking of sweet and kind children, meanwhile, Lucerius, you know, back kind of on the other side of the, the courtyard patio and is approached by his grandfather Corliss, who tells him that one day he'll be lord of the tides when his brother Jace is king. Luke balks at this and Corlys doesn't immediately understand. Most second sons would be absolutely thrilled to have such a bright future head of their own house without the need for bloodshed. Entire character arcs in the main series are focused around who will inherit a lordship. It casts a shadow over House Lannister, House Martell, House Greyjoy, House Hunter, and so many more throughout the first existing five books. But Luke, clouded in grief and so young, can only focus on one terrifying thought, that in order to become Lord of the Tides, most of the people he loves will have to die, both his grandfathers and his parents for a start props again to steve toussaint here who doesn't even offer an er- a verbal reply just at a loss for words in the face of such a sad revelation from his grandson in this moment and others in the episode we can see that he truly is yet another strong role model for these boys
2: yeah i love that scene uh, then following that we get this extremely brief moment that uh I hope everyone caught. It was actually so brief that, you know, it might have gone past some viewers' heads. Uh, Eamon and Jace meet across a brazier, and uh, both are looking extremely miserable. This is not a happy gathering, and no one, even the adults, really knows how to act. And kids at a funeral. I mean, that's just, it's just like torture. Plus all the family tension its just making everything more awkward. And so they kind of exchange glances and the shadow of a smile starts to cross Eamon's face and Jace appears to be on the verge of kind of shyly responding. But then it's like a door closes or, a you know, shade comes down and they both remember what they've been taught, that they're enemies who must hate each other. Uh, It was so swift, so well done, just a couple of facial expressions from a pair of small boys, uh, eloquently speaking volumes about opportunities missed and what's to come. And then the scene moves on to another pair of brothers.
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, we've seen Viserys, we've seen Damon throughout the scene quite a bit, but, you know, no words really spoken. But eventually Viserys does rise from his seat and kind of shufflingly, painfully makes his way over to his younger brother Damon. The last time we saw them together was at Rhaenyra's wedding before all hell broke loose. And while it's possible that there's been contact since then, it seems unlikely based on the tone that they take uh, and other context clues. Viserys tries to relate to his brother, saying the gods can be cruel, and Daemon can't help himself here, saying especially cruel to you. This dynamic of Daemon telling him how it is, you know, to Viserys isn't new, and Viserys seems to forgive any potential offense agreeing with Daemon here. Despite how Daemon handled things when Viserys lost Emma, the elder brother is trying to be the bigger person here. He offers Daemon the opportunity to return to King's Landing, offering him a place in court again if that's what he needs. Daemon, who's always resented his position as second son, someone who needs to be granted power by his elder brother, says, I need nothing. But the careful viewer might notice that he begins mouthing something that looks specifically like Rhaenyra before he bites it off saying nothing instead. Viserys, king of the Seven Kingdoms, can really offer Daemon anything, but what Daemon really wants and needs is understanding and love, things that Viserys has always struggled to give him as Damon walks away from this exchange Otto T- Hightower steps in to, you know, give condolences to the widowed Damon. However, the rogue prince is always quick with a quip, snap, spitting back, no matter how fat the leech grows, it is always wants for another meal. This entire exchange took me back to Damon's moment in the throne room with Viserys following Emma's death again. Uh, Damon sees Otto for who he is, but the dysfunction in his relationship with Viserys allows Otto to keep cozying up to the king in dangerous ways. We ask a lot of what ifs during this series, but one has to wonder what would have happened if Viserys had trusted Damon about Otto and not let him
0: return to court. Okay, let's move on to Viserys and Alicent now. Uh, visibly exhausted, Viserys decides to call it a night. He's had enough. Lord Commander Harold Westling escorts, escorts him from the scene, and Viserys says good night to his wife, which is all well and good. <laughs> However, he calls her Emma. The name of his first wife, obviously. He'd just been commiserating with Damon about the death of his wife so we can understand his train of thought, but the mistake serves to show us that it's not only Viserys' physical health that's failing, he might just be beginning to lose his faculties. Given the command the demands of kingship, there is a significant This is a significant moment in his decline, I think. Harold makes sure to subtly correct his king. And as he leaves with the Viserys, he gives the Kingsguard night watch to Kristen Cole. And here is another important detail, because it means whatever happens between the royal children in the dead of night happens on Kristen Cole's watch. So we'll talk about this later. But for now, I can tell you I'm happy we can all blame Kristen Cole.
1: Yep. (laughs) I gotta agree with that before I move on. So after a long day of laying Lena to rest and grieving with most of the court, we finally see Lena's parents, Corliss and Rainey's, get a moment alone together in the Hall of Nine. The loss of a child is one of the hardest tragedies one can face. In the real world, it's known to tear marriages apart as each party searches for meaning or someone to blame and, you know, kind of something that doesn't always have meaning or blame. And the scene opens like that, with Rainey's casting around for someone to, you know, pin this on. Damon, for wanting to stay in Pentos, the lack of maesters there in Pentos to help her. Corlys, who's been shown to be a very pragmatic person, pushes back on these assertions gently. He can more readily accept what happened at this stage as an act of the gods. Rainey says the gods have perhaps scorned them for their insatiable pride. This isn't the first time that the couple has danced around this old grudge of Rainey's claim or, or that Corley's has been characterized as the one who really won't move on from it. In the wake of the tragedy, Rainey's cuts past even that old argument as something that she got over a generation ago, while Corley's won't. But now in her grief for Lena, Rhaenys is focused on a new goal, honoring her daughter in a way that the realm would not honor her. She proposes naming Bela and Rhaena as heirs to Driftmark. With Laenor taking care of his king consort, he doesn't need a lordship, she thinks Driftmark should pass through the Valerian bloodline, Lena's girls, as Laenor's sons are not of his blood, Valerian blood. Even amongst Rhaenyra's assumed allies, Rhaenys wants to acknowledge the reality of things and not let the big lie about Rhaenyra's sons deprive Lena's daughters of their home. She urges Corlys to speak plainly here. It's only the two of them.
2: Yeah, but Corlys doesn't really seem
1: moved by or
2: shocked by Rhaenys' revelation. I think this speaks volumes about him. Uh, while Rainis is understandably upset about the continued quest to right old wrongs and how it affects her children's lives, Corlys seems much more willing than she is to accept his grandsons, or as his grandsons, the boys that Laenor has claimed as his own, um, knowing full well that they aren't his blood. History remembers names, not blood, Corlys says, which is a very pragmatic point of view, in an era where DNA tests simply don't exist. And legally, these matters hinge entirely upon a man's acceptance of children as his own. So I, I view Jocerius and Lucerius and Joffrey, you know, along the lines of adopted sons. You know, leonor has accepted them. He calls them his sons. They call him father. And, you know, that, that should, should be the end of it, especially even in this era, because there's really no way to prove it other than looks, which isn't exactly scientific. So no matter what they look like, as long as Lenore claims them as his, that should be the position that the entire family takes. And uh, that is the position that Corleys takes. And while that might be Part of his relentless pursuit of legacy, as Rainis implies. I'm not sure it's wholly cynical. I do think there's room to see Corliss as a very compassionate and loving man who's trying to do his best by these children during a very difficult time. Um, So, moving on from uh, the scenes inside of High Tide, uh, we next move out to the beach. Kids get sent to bed. Rhaenyra and Daemon go for a walk on the beach. They have a very frank conversation about Laenor and Harwin and Lena and how their lives have gone since they presumably last saw each other 10 years ago. Rhaenyra manages to be vulnerable and yet strong at the same time. She reminds her uncle that she was a child last time they met, that she felt abandoned by him back then, and that she really needed him. And she's making it clear that, in her opinion, she still needs him, that they belong together, which is definitely very much setting up what happens in the rest of the episode. Uh, like much of the episode, this scene is very dark and moody, and there's very little dialogue. Renira has a lot to say to Damon, but he responds cautiously, almost, you know, monosyllabic. And uh, that talking, such as it is, is front-loaded in the scene, because the scene ends with the back half of the scene is uh, a love scene with the pair consummating this kind of long simmering tension between them uh, after Rhaenyra pointedly notes that she's no longer a child. Uh, we get a sense in this scene that these two are very much destined to be together, to work as a team. But their stolen moments together do come to an end when Damon becomes aware that Vagar. Flying overhead. Uh, as an experienced dragon rider, I think he surely knows uh, something is happening. So, Yoke Boy, why don't you uh, walk us through what was going on in that parallel scene, which played out, you know, as this one was playing out? They're interspersed.
0: Yeah, so last week we saw Amond taking a ton of flack in the dragon pit because the other kids had dragons and he didn't. Even his big brother picked on him, teaming up with Jason Luke to bring forth a pig for Eamon to ride. In that sequence, we learned how deeply Eamon's desire to ride a dragon runs, as after being humiliated, he crept down to the dragon's lair by himself. The takeaway was that while he didn't have a dragon of his own, he was certainly not short of the courage required to mount one. Well, this week, Aemond outdid himself. He went and claimed Vagar, the oldest and largest dragon in the known world. Vagar is a legendary she dragon who was instrumental in Aegon's conquest of Westeros when Queen Visenya rode her. The last living remnant of that era, Vagar was more recently, well, very recently in fact, ridden by Lena Valerion, whose death was supposed to be mourned today. Not one to miss an opportunity, Amond crept out on his own at night and found Vegar sleeping in the sand dunes under the moonlight. While young Amond is a small lad, Vegar was absolutely ginormous. We saw Vegar last week, but here we not only had the closest look at Vegar, but the most detailed and extended dragon sequence in this show so far. It begins with Amond trying to sneak close to her and mount her while she's asleep but she's having none of it. Her eye flicks open but Aemon is brave enough to persist in this quest and uses the lessons the Valyrian dragon tamers in the dragon pit no doubt taught him. He says "doheris" and then Likiri, meaning serve and calm down in High Valyrian. When he climbs up to the saddle he shouts, Cervez, which means fly. And here he's trying to cement the sacred bond between them. Given we've learned the bond between dragon and rider is for life. Now that Lena is dead and Vega is accepting another rider, we can say with some amount of confidence that a dragon must know instinctively when its riders died and then will perhaps accept other claim- claimants. Speaking about the actual sequence, the flight itself I thought was breathtaking. I found some of the Dragon CGI in the show a bit hit or miss, but here the digital artists excelled and no expense was spared in making the sequence as thrilling as possible. Vegas so large, Ryan Condal has likened her to a B-52 bomber that's hard to get off the ground, but once up becomes unstoppable. Aemon was hanging on for his dear life and after a bumpy beginning he successfully navigates the dragon to complete the bond. Aemon now has control of the deadliest dragon in Westeros, a move that upsets his rivals in more ways than one.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a big deal anytime Vegar takes to the skies as Yolk just told us. So it's not surprising that we see several characters react to her being in the air. Bela and Rhaena in particular notice and rush to wake their cousins, Rhaenyra's children, uh, to investigate who stole Vhagar. They find their quarry in the landing of a staircase. This is a change from Fire and Blood where it was Rhaenyra's three boys against Aemond. But as Joffrey was, is a baby right now and the girls have a vested interest in their mother's dragon, this change works. I know, Yoke; you'll walk us through a little bit more of the book stuff in a second. Immediately from that first line of dialogue, it's me. We sense this change in Aemond. He's blunt and cruel to the girls when they confront him, telling Reyna that she should have claimed Vagar before he did. Maybe your cousins can find you a pig to ride, he jeers, showing how deeply the earlier insults and bullying have impacted him. Reyna rushes him, and he throws her to the ground before Bela jumps in, punching him in the face and taking a much harder punch in return. In this society, even at their age, getting physical with the girls would be a big no-no, unchivalrous and unbecoming of the prince for sure. Eamon escalates, threatening to feed Bela to his dragon, who has been his dragon for about ten minutes. You know, he's already unlocked some new sadistic tendencies that really should alarm anyone. Jace and Luke leap to defend their cousins, and the fight becomes four against one. Eamon is the eldest and strongest, and just like in the book version of this event, that's also true. The preferential treatment that he received in the training yard from Kristen Cole comes to his aid as he kicks himself free of the onslaught of, frankly, somewhat weak and childish attacks by comparison. Eamon then comes out with the bastard accusation, confusing little Luke as he raises a rock to use as a weapon against the seven-year-old. Jace, presumably terrified for his brother and provoked by being called Lord Strong, pulls a small knife and he and Eamon struggle further. Ultimately, Rhaenyra's boys use a combo of sand to the eyes, not quite pocket sand, but sand to the eyes, and a knife, uh, Luke slashing Eamon's face, just in time for the Kingsguard to finally show up. All in all, the scene had the key elements of the book story despite the changes. Uh, The infighting and backstabbing of the adults has definitely come to have a serious impact on their children, and we'll see the fallout of that in the next scene, starting with Viserys wanting to know where the fuck the Kingsguard were during that fiasco.
0: Yes, they were AWOL. Because of Kristen Cole. Before we get to that I want to compare this fight with the parallel scene from Fire and Blood and I wanted to read the passage because it's such an important moment. Joffrey had run to get his brothers when Aemond took to the sky and they had come to his call. The Valerian princelings were younger than Aemond, Jace was six, Luke five, Joff only three, but there were three of them and they had armed themselves with wooden swords from the training yard. Now they fell on him With a fury, Eamon fought back, breaking Luke's nose with a punch, then wrenching the sword from Joff's hand and cracking it across the back of Jace's head. As the younger boy scrambled back away from him, the prince began to mock them, laughing and calling them the Strongs. Jace, at least, was old enough to grasp the insult. He flew at Eamon once, but the older boy began pummeling, pummeling him savagely until Luke, came to the rescue of his brother, he drew his dagger and slashed Eamon across the face, taking out his right eye. By the time the stable boys finally arrived to pull them apart, the prince was writhing on the ground, howling in pain, and Vagar was roaring as well. So there you go, that's what we were saying about the, the bond between Vagar in the books, Vagar could feel Eamund's pain. So while I enjoyed both the books on the show, I did think it was pretty neat to include Baylor and Rainer in the fight. It worked so well, given that they knew Vega as their mother's dragon and so had an emotional attachment to it. And as we've said, Amond Mountain Vega is a potential game changer in the long term, but also in the short term, there's more immediate consequences. Lady Gwen.
2: Before we move on, I just want to point out that uh, they did change the eye. Uh, is his left eye in the show. They swapped the hound's uh, burn from one side of the face to the other. They always have reasons why they do this. Maybe it has to do with the actor or camera angles or something. But I always I love to pick up on stuff like that. Uh, so we move on to uh, Harold Westerling and the King's Guard arrive. Pull the kids apart. This is a, quite a shocking moment considering... Uh, Aemond is bleeding profusely from his eyeball. So the children are taken to the king and queen in the Hall of Nine to really just get to the bottom of things. Lucerius is furious and he's asking many questions, namely how Kristen Cole, an adult, tries to defect the blame onto the children, Jocerius and Luceris, nine and seven completely avoiding the king's question about who had the watch it was him because uh you know why wouldn't you just try to blame little kids when you screwed up so uh, <laughs> there is a this is a very strong vibe of a situation at darry with Arya and joffrey in a game of thrones you've got an impotent king kind of raging in a borrowed hall a mother howling for vengeance Scared children who had, as so often happens when kids are left to their own devices, just got caught up in events that spiraled out of control. Even down to the fact that the Greens are the first ones on the scene, along with the King and the King's Guard, just like you had with Arya and the Lannisters, and her father, you know, only arrived later um, to find her sort of standing there, petrified, uh, as everybody screams at her. So, uh, definitely, huge parallel there. Corlys and Rhaenys do eventually arrive, demand to know what is going on, and Rhaenyra, closely followed by Daemon, is not far behind. Add in Aegon and Helena, various Kingsguard, a maester, and a bunch of just vassals and attendants who are milling about, and this scene is really a weird mirror for the uh, funeral scene on the terrace earlier, uh, only instead of awkward uh, roaming about in light conversation. Everyone's sort of standing stiffly around. Anger and emotions are boiling over. People are shouting. At one point, after the kids are asked what happened, all of them begin to speak at once, uh, throwing accusations left and right. And the king still trying to figure out what on earth has happened, has to shout for silence.
1: Yeah, I really appreciated how Viserys commanded the room. Though he's old, frail, and visibly handicapped, he maintained enough authority that everyone in the room was under his power up until Alicent breaks with him. Patty Constantine has brought an incredible depth to the role of Viserys. Uh, Even George says he likes this version of Viserys better than the Fire and Blood version. You know, he's a weak king trying his best to hold everything together uh, that seems to desperately, constantly want to break free from his control. You can feel the pleading in his command that everyone apologize and get along, the wish of an old man who's come to value family more than anything else, despite his choice of wife, his biases, and general weakness playing a role in so much of their strife. Much like we felt for Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon when they had to hand out judgment to their children, we, we feel for Viserys here, trying to bring justice to children all of his own blood.
2: Yep, it's definitely a difficult situation. And certainly when the scope of Eamon's injury becomes obvious, Alison's anger knows no bounds. Uh, she immediately uh, slaps Aegon, blaming him for his younger brother's mishap. Uh, we actually saw Eamon sneak away earlier in the evening when Otto came across, Aegon passed out on the terrace steps, uh, kicked him awake and hauled him off to bed. So, I mean, technically Aegon could have noticed his brother lurking there, but I mean, so could the hand of the king. Um, Aegon takes the blame again when Viserys demands to know where he heard the rumors uh, about Rhaenyra's son's parentage. Uh, actually, he's speaking to Aemond, Where did you hear the rumors? Uh, Aemond sort of has this moment where he looks at his mother. Uh, it's almost like he's going to say, Bob told me, uh, but then he blames his brother. So Viserys confronts Aegon and the scene plays out just as it did in Fire and Blood. Uh, Here's a quote from the book when pressed by the King Prince Aemon said it was his brother Aegon who had told him they were strong. And so Prince Aegon said only everyone knows, just look at them. So in spite of Viserys commanding everyone to get along saying we are family, it's obvious uh, that uh, that's wishful thinking. A line has been crossed here that bodes very poorly for the pu- future of this family unit. Damon and Otto, uh, throughout all of these proceedings, kind of keep to the periphery, observing everything, like generals marshalling their troops and evaluating the enemy. I see them each kind of making note. They nod a couple of times. So, you know, rather than a happy, supportive unit that Viserys so clearly craves, we are shown almost literal battle lines being drawn here.
0: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Yeah, the tension is so high at this point. And so when Viserys refuses Ellison's suggestion to take an eye and even the scores. She says, if the king will not seek justice, the queen will. So she's effectively trying to overrule the king while he stood beside her in a room full of witnesses. It's quite amazing. In Viserys' words, she's letting her temper guide a judgment and in doing so, she's directly challenging the king's authority. She then orders Kristen Cole to bring her the eye of Lucerys Valerion, This is a serious manoeuvre and one that puts all the eyes in the room on Kristen Cole. As we know from the main series, with Kingsguard characters such as Barristan Selmy and Jaime Lannister, there can be some uncomfortable grey areas around honour and duty and vows that a Kingsguard has to face when the king or queen asks something awful of them. Jamie Lannister, for example, found himself in an extremely difficult position when he realized the king he was bound to serve was going to decimate King's Landing and so decided to break his sacred vow and actually kill him. So this is a well-worn theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. Here, Alicent is ordering a knight of the Kingsguard to defy the king's wishes and cut out the, the eye of a royal child in front of the king himself. Like I said, Cole is in a terrible position And we see the look of pure discomfort on his face. His Lord Commander Harold Westerling is also gravely concerned (laughs) at the situation and how Cole is going to choose to answer, but fortunately for everyone involved there is a get-out in Cole's vows and station. He replies that he's sworn to protect the Queen. Obviously protecting does not entail half-blinding royal children, whom he is technically also sworn to protect, by the way, in the pursuit of literal eye-for-eye justice. And so Kristen refuses the order. By now, Westerling is sweating and his relief is palpable. Can anyone imagine the scene if Kristen had agreed? And do we think Kristen would have been more willing to comply to this order if he wasn't in the king's presence? Interesting questions. Although this is ultimately a scene of violence, things could have been so much worse here. The writers managed to articulate just how perilously close the two sides are to bloody conflict that would split not only the noble families of Westeros, but even the treasured and sacred institutions like the Kingsguard. As it goes, there was some relatively minor bloodshed. After Viserys shows his soft swap for his daughter and orders an end to the rumours of her children being illegitimate, Alicent snaps. Granted, she's very upset about Eamon's eye, but this move is unprecedented. She grabs Viserys's Valyrian steel knife and rushes to take Lucerys' eye out herself. Rhaenyra, of course, puts herself in the way, but then Alicent refuses to put down the knife. It now seems long ago when these two were BFFs sitting beside the Weirwood, writing, reading books and listening to songs. Damon body checks Kristen Cole here and that might be a sign that he believed Kristen might be willing to hurt Rhaenyra and her children if there was a way to justify it in the middle of a scramble. And so Westerling is quick to tell coal to stay his hand. So altogether, it's a scene of chaos, Lady Gwyn.
2: It sure is. One person who managed to more or less keep her cool is Venera she's, she's defending her sons. Uh, she's fairly calm. She's obviously extremely unhappy. Alicent is basically losing her shit. She's aiming Aegon the Conqueror's Valyrian steel dagger at which holds so much meaning for House Targaryen and its destiny at Rhaenyra's face. Uh, She's sobbing and ranting to Rhaenyra about duty and sacrifice. Uh, These are things that have been demanded from her. And from her perspective, Rhaenyra has had uh, none of those things asked of her. Although we know that based on Rhaenyra's earlier conversation with Daemon on the beach, um, that she would disagree. She feels very much that... She has had duty and sacrifice as, you know, major themes in her life since she was named heir to her father. Renira turns the mirror on Alison, calling out her sort of self-righteous behavior and telling her old friend, now they see you as you are. The gloves are finally off between these two, and Alison, probably feeling that she's revealed uh, too much of herself, slashes at Rhaenyra in frustration. And with a deep slice in her left forearm, Rhaenyra is left fairly horrified by this act of violence. Uh, we know from other transgressions that we we see throughout the series and uh, the canon that uh, it's death to strike at a at a royal prince. Uh, but what to do when the aggressors are other princes or the queen? Uh, This is a conundrum, and Viserys chooses to focus on stemming the immediate argument and threatening that anyone, um, and from Fire and Blood, he means anyone, man, woman, or child, noble or common or royal. I think emphasis on royal. Uh, Anyone spreading rumors about Rhaenyra's sons would have their tongues removed, and that's all he's going to focus on. So he, he orders an end to the proceedings, basically glossing over this... ...break that his wife has had, Uh, and then Aymond tells his mother not to mourn him, saying, I may have lost an eye, but I gained a dragon. Fire and Blood reports that uh, he lost an eye and gained a dragon that day and counted it a fair exchange, and with his missing eye being equated with a gift or a sacrifice... Amund takes on strong vibes of uh, Odin the Allfather, the Norse god who sacrificed his own eye in exchange for gaining divine wisdom and becoming omniscient. While we can't really attribute omniscience to Aemond, having Vagar on team green certainly contributes a sense of omnipotence uh, for who could stand against the oldest and mightiest dragon of them all. Um, there are two people present in the hall who seem to fully appreciate this fact and those are the two generals as I mentioned Damon Targaryen and Otto Hightower uh, taking it all in and both very conscious of what Aemond and Vagar means for the green camp. Then in the next scene we actually get to hear from Otto how he feels about the whole situation
1: You know, Alicent got her wish last episode as she now has her father back, a hand who is sympathetic to her. And yet when Otto comes to these chambers she's staying in, she's immediately kind of cowed by his presence, reflecting on every action that she took with intense scrutiny, predicting her father's scorn. Considering the boldness she displayed in the previous episode, it's almost jarring to see her kind of fall back in this role. But uh, this contrite, controlled daughter, now that Otto is back. But there is a little different feel to it and how she structures it. It's the first we've really seen, uh, you know, Olivia Cook get any opportunity to interact with her on-screen father. Though, you know, those interactions between Allison, the younger Allison, and uh, Otto were one of the cornerstones of, of her performance. So... Again, yet Allison's expectations and ours are subverted here. Otto chooses not to reprimand her as she expects. He agrees with her analysis, but there's not the scorn there that she expected. Instead, we get the line that we saw in some of the earliest released footage. We play an ugly game, and now for the first time I see that you have the determination to win it. My sister and I were actually discussing this episode, and she said that it felt like this a new phase in their father-daughter relationship where Otto sees her as an adult and a player for the first time. Rather than Otto maneuvering her and using his position of authority as her father and as the Hand, they're now working together as a team with a common cause to secure their line's ascension to the Iron Throne. The focus is no longer on if Rhaenyra is the enemy, but how to stop her and her sons at all costs. Alicent has made do with tenuous allies in the explosive Kristen Cole and the very creepy Laris Strong, but now, with her intelligent, calculating father, her brave, roguish son Aemond, and his newly claimed Vhagar, who again is the largest and most formidable of all living dragons, the Greens have as- assembled a much more formidable challenge to Rhaenyra and her blacks. Uh, speaking of Rhaenyra, her side seems to uh, lack advantages right now, so let's circle back on that, Gwyn.
2: Following that confrontation in the hall, uh, Rhaenyra is having her wound tended to by the maester. And by the way, I am very impressed with the, the not only the maester's stitches and the speed with which they apply them, but also with both Rhaenyra and Aemon for sort of sitting there and taking it without any kind of uh, painkiller. So uh, that's <laughs> is an interesting scene, both of them. Uh, Laner comes back. They'd been looking for him before. No one really quite knew where he was. He's been out all night, probably dealing with his sorrow over his sister's death. And he's clearly struggling as well with his inadequacies as a husband and father. It's a we-need-to-talk moment where Rhaenyra, once again being extremely frank with one of the men in her life, just lays everything bare. Lenore seems full of self-loathing, but Rhaenyra responds with, responds with kindness, and it's really refreshing to see the obvious affection that these two have for each other. Uh, possibly another thing for Alicent to be jealous of her former friend for. Rhaenyra seems to possess a gift for personal relationships that her stepmother lacks, uh, whatever else her faults may be. And, you know, she's she's got whatever they think of her her marriage and you know the parentage of her children it's obvious that lenore and renera really do care for each other um Laenor describes that you know their decade long attempt to find happiness with others uh, as they as they did their duty together it was doomed and he tells his wife that he plans to let carl return to the stepstones without him while he stays behind to be a husband and father when he tells rhaenyra you deserve a husband we can see on her face that the talk she had in mind was something other than encouraging laenor to be better i think the plan we see unfold throughout the the next several scenes has to be formed, or at least forming, in Rhaenyra's mind at this point. She had already decided that, as things stood, the husband she deserved and needed is Daemon Targaryen. I think it'll soon become clear that the conclusion of this conversation, which takes place off-screen, involves some very serious decision-making, and we'll have more on that shortly.
1: Following the funeral and the violent aftermath, Viserys and his court depart Driftmark, Uh, We've seen a lot of the king's travels in this series, which is a nice nod to the Targaryen tradition of royal progresses. It's enjoyable to see them on screen, uh, as we only really saw one such journey in Game of Thrones when King Robert comes to Winterfell to offer Ned the Handshipped, but continuing with travel like that during wartime was, of course, not feasible. I've enjoyed the use of the royal wheelhouse as a backdrop for little character moments like the one that we get here with Viserys and Alicent. Her father instructed her to be penitent and play her role, saying the king would have no choice but to forgive her. And, of course, Otto is right in this. Viserys is just tired here. And before Alicent can even, you know, formulate any kind of apology, he tells her to speak of it no more. The king is a patient and forgiving man who, in his failing health, only seeks for his family to be whole. This, as Larys Strong might say, is a weakness in him, as wishing this to be true does not actually heal any of the wounds between the Blacks or the Greens. Uh, Getting to see this moment unfold sets the dynamic for the coming period going into another time jump between episodes 7 and 8, as does the rest of the Royal Departure. We see the Targaryen ship setting sail back to King's Landing with Viserys, Alicent, their three children, the Kingsguard... Otto, the reinstated hand, and Larys Strong. In the skies above, we see the current dragons allied with the Greens, all ridden by Viserys and Allison's children. We've got uh, Aegon's Golden Sunfire. We've got Hel- Helena's Dreamfire, and of course Vagar, newly claimed by Aemon. We'll cover that a little bit more in Dragonwatch, though. A powerful finish for the Greens.
0: Yeah, and I was gonna just add on to that. At this point, it is worth reflecting on Viserys. And thinking about his mortality, having seen him so eaten up and exhausted in this scene, he's falling apart piece by piece due to some kind of disease akin to leprosy, we've been told. He had his fingers removed and an arm, and now he's laboring around and he looks, you know, as pale as a ghost. What struck me about this episode is how angry we saw Viserys earlier. It seemed like he's on death's door, yet nobody around him is making his life any easier. Should they be creating these situations where he's, you know, fuming mad in his state? I think that Viserys' ailing health is a potent metaphor to represent how life-sapping being ruler has been for him, and on another level, how the health of Westeros is linked to his. Like Emily said, He wants peace between his family and he's a reasonable, well-intentioned man. But some of the decisions he's made, like choosing to marry Alison, or as Jinx in the chat was saying, his general inaction to give any consequences to the bad behavior of his family and those people around him, have really laid the groundwork for massive conflict now he's trying to hold something together that is inherently going to fall apart he's spending a lot of his remaining life force attempting to contain the squabbling around him he looks so exhausted and soon he's not going to have energy left As a king who inherited a peaceful realm, he's desperate to ensure his legacy is peace too, but I think he knows that he will be leaving Westeros on an ice edge when he finally passes, and I expect that to be pretty soon. There are no cures or band-aids to the dynamics we saw unfolding in front of Viserys today, and so his efforts and this energy-sapping anger are more or less in vain. Couldn't agree
2: more with that. Uh, after her father departs, Rhaenyra speaks with Daemon again on the castle ramparts. as They watch the king's ship sail away, trailed by three dragons. She talks about fire, how it's affected their lives, uh, that it's a prison. Daemon Riley notes that perhaps the Valyrians are right and the sea is a better ally. And Rhaenyra says pointedly, the sea offers an escape. Interesting. Don't think much about that. In the moment, uh, but certainly on a rewatch that jumps out is very significant. She continues uh, by saying, I need you, uncle, and then switches to Valerian, telling him, I cannot face the Greens alone. Once again, she has a lot to say while Damon listens and offers not much in the way of replies. She tells him that they're made of fire, that they're meant for each other, and that her claim would be so much stronger if she had him at her side. She's offering Damon his heart's desire, basically, or very nearly so. But he sees the hitch. In order for them to marry, uh, Leonor would have to be dead. So the scene ends with uh, Rhaenyra saying, I know. And then we cut to Damon in Spicetown talking to Carl Corey. Uh, there are, uh, he says, there are places across the narrow sea where a man's name doesn't matter, only how much gold he has. It appears like Damon is offering Carl a pile of gold to kill Lainor, especially when he says he wants a clean death with witnesses. And this is followed by a quick succession of scenes with voiceover from Rhaenyra and uh, Damon's continued conversation as they lay their plan. Rhaenyra has no desire to be a tyrant though Damon cautions her that it's all well and good to want love and respect, but that a strong king must be feared. This is an old dichotomy in Westerosi politics. In spite of everything, though, Rhaenyra loves Laenor, and uh, she might just be a bit conflicted about this plan. But Damon insists that setting him free will be a kindness, and, uh, Rhaenyra's other concern is for Corleus and Rhaenys. This will cost them their only remaining child. And as a mother, she definitely knows the pain that this is going to inflict on her kinswoman and is probably her biggest roadblock. She knows that the realm will whisper about her, but the truth will be known to her and Daemon. Their enemies, on the other hand, won't know what they're capable of. And that will make them think twice. While this dialogue is happening, we see Damon kill a serving man in the castle, uh, followed by Lenor entering his father's hall to find Carl in front of the fire where his parents had uh, discussed his son's parentage not long before. In front of a servant, he makes a very good show of being angry at Carl's presumption, and they begin to fight. The youngster uh, flees to get the guard, and when they return, Carl is gone, and there's a burned and disfigured body dressed in Laenor's clothes in the massive fireplace. Rhaenys' grief paired with Corlys' anger are absolutely heartbreaking. And at this point, many viewers, especially those of us who've read Fire and Blood, likely uh, still think that this was a plot by Daemon and Rhaenyra to kill Laenor and make way for their own marriage, uh, especially when the next scene turns out to be a wedding. So we'll come back to Lenor shortly.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about the wedding following... The discovery of Laenor's burnt body, Daemon and Rhaenyra prepare to tie the knot. There's been a skip forward, and presumably we're now on Dragonstone. They are being married in the Targaryen tradition, and after her marriage to Laenor Valerian, which followed the traditional Westerosi format, this is a a real Targaryen power couple matchup. They're going to align themselves with every Targaryen custom and ritual and symbol that they can think of as the struggle against the High Tower faction begins to heat up. So it's no wonder that they're going for an old-school Targaryen wedding, even if it's being conducted in perhaps semi-secret with only their children, a maester and a Valyrian priest present. The ceremony begins with a pair cutting their own lips with obsidian, also known as dragonglass, and using the blood to smear a symbol on each other's heads. Fantasy linguist David J. Peterson, who designed the Valyrian language, has said that the symbol on Rhaenyra's head was high Valyrian glyph, meaning fire, and the one on Daemon's head was a glyph meaning blood, which together, of course, form the Targaryen house words. The pair then cut their hands with the dragon dragonglass and their hands are bound together. This puts us in mind of bloodlines, keeping them pure, and of course the bloodline graphics of the intro sequence. So it's obviously an important theme to this story. Earlier, Corlys Valerian weighed up what was more valuable in matters of legacy, blood or name. Well, I guess as a couple, Damon and Rhaenyra now have both their legitimacy. The legitimacy of Rhaenyra's children may have been called into question, and those slights are bound to continue. But now the king's brother and daughter stand as one. Given what we've seen of both of them, there will surely be a force to be reckoned with. Looking back in hindsight at season one so far, and the groundwork had certainly been done. From day one to establish this partnership and marriage, as early as the first episode, intimate framing was used. Can you remember this? When Damon put a necklace on Rhaenyra's neck and there was just something about it. The pair were always speaking in high Valyrian together and there was the faithful knight, of course, when he took her to that pillow house. Now, years later, they are together and it's needless to say this union is going to have a huge impact on the plot. With the way the timeline skips and jumps, we'll likely miss the reactions of Viserys, Allison, Otto, Corlys, and other pertinent characters to this major development, which I think is a shame because all of these would have been priceless. Damon and Renira are together, and we know with Damon's rogue character that they will not be messing around when the inevitable tensions with Allison reach further boiling points but while this felt like a conclusion there was actually one scene left in the episode that was wholly unexpected by book readers lady gwen
2: as i mentioned the sequence as the sequence of events with carl and lenore plays out fire and blood readers more than likely remembered the various reports about the death of Laenor Valerian. Gildane states plainly that Laenor was killed by Carl Cory, who then fled to a waiting ship to vanish from history. He adds the fairly mundane perspectives of Melos and Septon Eustace, who more or less agree with what he's saying, before offering Mushroom's version uh, that, uh, quote, Prince Damon paid Carl Cory to dispose of Princess Rhaenyra's husband, arranged for a ship to carry him away, then cut his throat and fed him to the sea. A household knight of relatively low birth, Corrie was known to have a lord's tastes and a peasant's purse and was given to extravagant wagering besides, which lends a certain credence to the fool's version of events. So Damon's use of that exact phrasing when he's speaking with Carl uh, in this episode about a lord's taste in a peasant's purse and his subsequent offer of gold no doubt convinced many of us that uh, Mushroom had it right. And I don't think that non-book readers fared any differently since this was marvelously set up misdirection. In spite of that fact, uh, you know, on a rewatch, it's obvious that Lenore was in on the plan. But I do wonder how many viewers saw this final twist coming. I certainly did not. Sir, Car- Sir Carl Corey bringing a robo into shore and a hooded figure running through the waves to join him. Uh was not an accomplice or a cutthroat come to finish off Sir Carl on Damon's orders, which I'll be honest is 100% what I expected to happen. Nope. It was, uh, it was Lainer Valerian. There he is. Uh, head shaved to disguise his identity. Something, uh, we've seen before in uh, song of ice and fire or related canon. Uh, spoiler, if you don't already know, uh, that the squire egg is a secret Targaryen who shaves his head to hide his uh, identity in the Duncan Egg stories. And as many theorize, you've got Varys, uh, the spider, shaving his head to conceal his own possible secret Valyrian heritage, uh, lest inconvenient questions be asked. Anyways, I, I thought of those uh, bald guys with silver hair <laughs> when I saw Lainor. Because, of course, uh, it wasn't a perfect solution. You know, this plot had victims, Lenor's parents, his sons, who had only just suffered the death of Sir Harwin. Most of all, the nameless serving man uh, whose corpse stood in for Laenor's burned body. Uh, against all of which, I suppose one could argue that Rhaenyra was focused on her own duty as Viserys's heir and as the next in line to carry the knowledge of Vagon's prophetic dream for the future of Westeros to paraphrase Renara and Daemon's descendant Stannis Baratheon what is the life of one man against the fate of the kingdom Davos Seaworth obviously begs to differ and i think that is probably one of the central tensions of the larger story of Westeros over many generations it's one we are not going to solve tonight so let's uh, pour one out for the anonymous serving man and leave it there for now yoke boy
0: Okay, so I think it's time after we've walked through the episode, we've still got plenty of things to talk about. I want to lighten the mood and do Dragon Watch and Champ or Chump, our two featurettes. So, Lady Gwyn, how was Dragon Watch on this episode?
2: This week on Dragon Watch, Yoke Boy, Driftmark became a new Valyria with seven dragons seen in the skies above. We had Vagar, Caraxes, Cyrax, Melee, sea Smoke, Sunfire, and Dreamfire. Helena's Dreamfire hasn't been seen up close yet, so we don't really know exactly what she looks like. She was shown only as a as part of that trio of departing dragons. So we just saw her vague shape uh, across Blackwater Bay, but we did get our first glimpse of Sunfire on the ground. Um, yes, Sunfire, and uh, we have to assume that Vermax and Moondancer may have also been there as part of that whole new Valyria thing. They weren't seen not that I saw or noticed or talked to anyone about. Uh, So I believe, yes, seven dragons with the potential other two dragons that we know about in this uh, season so far maybe hiding in the background there.
0: Didn't they say that there would be nine dragons this season?
2: Yes, they they did. And if we go to the HBO website where they have their their uh, dragon guide, they actually list 10 dragons. They include Balerion because his skull is seen repeatedly in that temple area inside the Red Keep. So, uh, yeah, so I think we've pretty much uh, seen all the dragons that we expect to see. Although, like I said, we have yet to see Moondancer and Dreamfire sort of up close,
0: so. Okay, so let's move on from Dragons, as exciting as it was. We could talk about that all night. Um, why don't we do our champ or chump? We talk about the very best and very worst characters of the week uh, in a light-hearted way. Why don't we start with the champ of the week? Lady Gwyn, who's your champ?
2: Uh, this week, for the first time, we have co-champs. It's Lenore and Carl, seizing the opportunity to sail off into the sunset together. Uh, literally, I believe. You know, with apologies to the the uh, anonymous serving man uh, <laughs> who paid with his life for their opportunity. Uh, I do. I do. Just love the fact that those two get to just get to go away together and live their best life, presumably.
0: You didn't fancy Eamon for his.
1: I would have picked Eamon, so maybe it's good that you... Yeah, I got cut off. They were like, you did it last week. You don't get to <laughs> weigh yeah, in on no. Champ.
2: <laughs> Something about Eamon slugging his little girl cousins. Um, yeah,
1: You know, yeah. you can
2: do... I, we talked about it.
1: <laughs> it was such it was such Champ behavior, like... and then he was like, I'm going to make you hate me so fast.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, a very controversial week in Champ of the Week. That's how we like it. So why don't we go to the chump? Is there going to be similar divisions? Emily, who's the chump?
1: For me this week, it's going to be Aegon, uh, mostly for lighthearted reasons. Look, obviously, they're like, you know, Kristen Cole, eternal chump. You know, there are other characters who fit that. But for me, you know, Aegon, despite Allison's warning in the previous episode, it seems like he has not bought into the idea that he will be king, should be king, needs to act like a potential king. He's seen just getting drunk and harassing servant women and is later kicked around by Grandpa Otto, who was no doubt disappointed and channeling a little bit of that like Tywin to Joffrey vibe there. So, yeah. Mm Okay.
0: Okay. So now we've done those featurettes, why don't we lurk into spoiler territory where we can talk about whatever we want as book readers, things that we were biting our tongue about in the spoiler-free analysis, and we, we've got to let some of this out.
2: Spoilers all books.
0: Okay, spoilers all books. Why don't you take it away, Lady Gwen?
2: Yeah, so I do have a couple of dragon-y spoilers. First of all, it appears like we're not going to get Alicent and Viserys' youngest son, uh, Dare on the Daring, uh, unless they bring him out of the woodwork in the next um, episode, maybe two. I think that we're going to be left one fan-favorite dragon, or at least dragon rider, short in season two. Uh, Tessaria and the Blue Queen will either be passed over or maybe given another rider. Uh, perhaps you know one of the seeds might get to Sarion we were just talking about how nice it would be to have blue dragons to distinguish them so we certainly would like to see that Uh, and speaking of dragons and riders when Laenor left he had abandoned presumably his dragon sea smoke Uh, it's a heartbreaking outcome I'm sure for the rider and presumably the dragon as well and in spite of you know what we think we know about dragon bonds, uh, bonding for life and all this, we, we don't really know what happens when a dragon is abandoned by its rider, if the bond continues to work, if it's broken by time or distance, or what have you. Um, but we do have strong hints that Adam and Alan of Hull will be in season two, so hopefully we will still get to see Adam claiming sea smoke. And uh, I think there's another interesting thing that's hinted at in this episode, which we were just talking about when Reyna tells Eamon that Vegar was hers to claim. I personally took that to mean that there's some preference given, either by custom or by the dragons themselves, to the children of the pre- their previous rider. And regarding a time elapsed, I would just suggest that, um, out of decency, it would it could if this is a custom, that. Uh, Perhaps the custom is that you hold off until the previous writer is actually buried or burned or what have you. So um, that was my take on that. Uh, If you consider that Adam and Alan are Laner's sons, as I do, and uh, hit me up outside of the stream if you want to know my reasoning for that, because I don't want to go into a big, long uh essay on that at the moment i think that the potential dragon and rider pairing becomes so much more poignant for sea smoke
1: i really hope we do get to see it for his sake this week i want to talk a little bit more about damon and lena's daughters bela and Reina. Uh, Twins in the books, although I think it's a little unclear in the show, these two are born in Pentos, but didn't stay there nearly as long as the show portrayed. Lena and her family did indeed return to Driftmark via ship when the girls were only half a year old, with Damon following overhead with the dragons. In Fire and Blood, we learn that the twins are betrothed to their cousins, Jacarius and Lucerius Valarian at the age of two. Uh, Someone in the chat actually earlier was asking why wasn't one of them maybe betrothed to Aemond to try to heal the wounds, and I think... The show's got some things that they're going to do, I think, next episode. But in the books, that wasn't really possible because they were betrothed literally as toddlers. There's no hint of that, you know, the betrothals having already occurred in the show yet. But with the recent marriage of Rhaenyra and Daemon, it's likely that they'll make the betrothals into something in the remaining episodes in season one. One thing that I really enjoyed this episode was seeing that this sweet bond begin to form between Jace and Bela, who were holding hands after the funeral. Jace and Luke were also quick to jump to Bela and Reyna's aid uh, when Vagar was spotted being ridden around Driftmark. As we learned in the previous episode, Bela has already bonded a dragon, the Hatchling Moondancer. Uh, It's possible that they chose to give Bela her dragon first to distinguish her as the more adventurous or bold sister, something that is definitely true later as she hits adulthood. Reyna also becomes a dragon rider, but much like the show portrays, her struggle to claim a dragon is more complicated. Her initial dragon egg did hatch, but the young dragon died pretty immediately in infancy. Later, she's given an egg from one of Cyrax's clutches, that's Rhaenyra's dragon, who eventually hatched into the dragon Mourning, born too late to be at any use during the impending war. There's much more to be said about these amazing girls, but I think I've covered what will be relevant this season, so I look forward to talking about them more in the future.
2: I have another thing that has to do with a concept that was introduced in this episode by Alicent, the idea of an eye for an eye. I mean, she didn't make it up herself, but it was introduced into this storyline by her. Uh, Assuming the show follows Fire and Blood as closely as it has, Eamon will still be spewing this line when he and Luke meet at Storm's End, which we do expect will happen in this season. Echoing the words we heard from Allison in this episode about a debt, Aemond will demand of Luke, according to Fire and Blood, pay the debt you owe me, you have a knife just as you did then, put out your eye and I will let you leave. The Lord Baratheon will make them uh, take it outside like a good bouncer. We all know what happens next. And the death of Lucerys Baratheon will lead to the blood and cheese incident, and so on and so on. And to say this could have been avoided if Allison had not insisted on the literal eye for an eye mentality might be oversimplifying a complicated situation, but it certainly seems like Alicent, as a mother, had the opportunity to set something in motion that didn't lead to death and destruction, and that she failed, choosing to set a very different example instead, all of which puts me in mind of the words of another mother, Alaria Sand who had seen enough of vengeance to last a lifetime and said, is that how it goes round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end?
0: I think I'm going to talk about the blacks and the greens because I talked about Helena's dreamer ramblings earlier. And the fact that what she says about this the loom is probably prophecy. Hand turns loom, spool of green, spool of black, dragons of the flesh, weaving dragons of thread. I was able to point out that the spool of green is no doubt a reference to Alicent's dress, but spoilers prevented me from elaborating that one day Rhaenyra will have a memorable dress of her own, a black one, and the two rival fractions in the story will then... Be universally known as the blacks and the greens. So I think it's quite clear that this is what Helena is alluding to. Prophetic dreams and visions, as we know from the main series, are delivered in abstract symbols. So the idea that Helena is perceiving a loom in her dreams, representing Alison and co. versus Ranira and co. I think it's very fitting with the style that George uses. So I appreciate the way they're handling prophecies here. And so you have the blacks and the greens. The other part of the prophecy, dragons of the flesh, weaving dragons of threads. That's open to interpretations. I'd love to hear other people's theories on this. Are dragons of the flesh real dragons or... Oh, dragons of the flesh referring to Targaryen characters who are often represented by dragons in prophetic dreams, as we saw in the Mystery Night when a dragon's egg hatching up white walls turned out to be egg. And weaving dragons of thread is another tricky one. My first thought with the mention of woven threads is house banners, so possibly it could be describing the rival Targaryen claimants calling their banners to begin the civil war that's at the center of this story. Of course, there are likely many other fan interpretations about this short phrase out there. And I think it's really fun to speculate and theorize over a morsel of prophecy like book readers love to with A Song of Ice and Fire. So in conclusion, I guess Helena is our patch face here.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, We all know we love... We love our patch face. So, Finally, one more spoiler thing, briefly, if I could. Uh, Sir Harold Westerling's continued presence on the show has puzzled some book readers since uh, in Fire and Blood he died of an unspecified cause nearly 10 years prior to the events we saw in this episode. His his role in Fire and Blood is really quite minuscule. He's probably mentioned a couple of times and then he's, he's coming on. In the book, uh, he was replaced by Aslord Lord. Commander of the King's Guard by Sir Kristen Cole in 112 AC. And so a lot of us have probably been wondering when this is going to happen. Um, based on stills from upcoming episodes, I think we can now accurately predict that Sir Harold will still be Lord Commander when Viserys dies, and that he might actually stand in for Sir Stefan Darklin, who stole Viserys's crown and defected to Rhaenyra on Dragonstone. Sir Stefan has been cast, but, you know, it's generally much easier to give these scenes to a known character rather than try to introduce or explain someone else who's basically just been a silent bystander for the entire season. Plus, Sir Kristen has hardly been acting like someone who's worthy of being named Lord Commander by Viserys. Uh, I think it'll make a lot more sense in the show if he's named to that post to fill a sudden vacancy in a clear show of favoritism by his patron, Alicent, So something to look forward to, I guess.
0: <laughs> and a big thank you to our guest, Emily. Have you got anything lined up, Emily, or any shouts you want to give?
1: Um, No, not right now. Thanks for asking though. Just hanging out with you guys. <laughs> That's me on Twitter.
0: Follow Emily on Twitter at Emily of the Eerie. If you've, love the show or you enjoy the show, think about becoming a patron, patreon.com slash radio westros. And thank you all for tuning in to watch us. We'll be back same time, same place next week. There'll be another great episode to analyze, I'm sure. So see you guys then.
2: Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons. Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaister Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Marge of the Mage, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theodin, Jill, Miss Jody, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, June of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infenderis, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sathorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our castle steel patrons: A.J., Aegon the Six, the only Arsling you need. Alex, Ali B, Allie C, Amber, Asha, not Yara, Oaken Fist, Pran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie, and Jessica. Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Eyrie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Brendan B Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeon. Winter's King, John Eris, writer of the Ice Dragon on the White Storm, Sir Gage, armorer of Castle Greyguard, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, armed with the Valyrian sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Liston, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margarita, and our cohort of mats Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick Irik, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sherry, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama the the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here, too. Visit patreon.com radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Bye for now.